Hey, this is Tom Atona, Bullet Club original, OG, triple, triple, O freaking G, New Japan pro wrestling athlete, and you're listening to Wrestle In. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Ohio, konnichiwa, konbanwa, and welcome to Noob Japan. This is the wrestling podcast in which we explore the wonderful world of Japanese pro wrestling, one wrestler at a time. I am Kieran RH, and for this episode, I will be playing a part of the Noob. Joining the podcast for approximately the 100th time is the inimitable Trent Bruard at One Up Culture on Twitter. He is a fellow member of the wrestling roster. He writes for our friends at Monthly Puro Resu and is one of the best minds in wrestling when it comes to all things stardom. Trent, as always, thanks for joining me again and again and again. Look, it's it's getting to the point where I'm almost like a, a one-half guest here where it's just kind of, oh, yeah, he's back. There's no big fanfare. There's no excitement. Oh, who's on today? Oh, it's Trent. Yep, yep, we know him. We know the sound of his voice. But it's good to be back. I always love doing these. I love spreading the word of Joshi. Um, occasionally, I might spread the word of someone who isn't a women's wrestler in Japan. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. That's basically blasphemy in Trent's books. I know. And if you want to hear more from Trent and myself, before we get going, I want to mention the Wrestle In Patreon, which is patreon.com slash wrestle in. For just $1 a month, you can sign up and you get access to our Patreon exclusive podcast, Into the Wrestleverse, where me and Trent are joined by Libby and we riff on all the current goings on in wrestling. Plus, you get early access to all our podcasts, including this one, Noob Japan. You could be listening to this a week earlier. That's how blessed you could be. We basically, for a dollar, you get access to time travel. That's pretty cool. Like normally, that would cost at least three fifty. <laughs> right, serious faces, because today's episode is going to be uh, a more serious episode than usual because we're going to discuss the life and career of Hannah Kimura, and so we're going to do away with the usual preamble. There's no uh, new rating system today. Uh, no pre-podcast uh, questions. I do want to mention that whilst this episode will focus on the career of Hannah within stardom, we're inevitably and unfortunately going to touch on Hannah's incredibly sad death in 2020. And if that is something you'd rather not like to listen to, uh, we suggest giving this episode a skip because there are some, uh, some not nice things to talk about when it comes to uh, the end of Hannah Kimura's life, unfortunately. Um, so we're going to dive, dive right into it. Trent, you're my guy for all things Sardom, and I couldn't think of a better person to join me to handle such a serious discussion on such a special wrestler. So I'm going to kick things off, as always, with the easy, simple, open question. Who was Hannah Kimura? Hannah Kimura is a second-generation wrestler. Um, she was half Japanese, half Indonesian, which is something that kind of ties into a lot of her history, both in wrestling uh, and beforehand. Um, it's sort of a very important part of her life. And she grew up in the wrestling business. Um, she followed Kyoko Kimura, her mother, around, basically, because she was an independent wrestler, so she travelled all of Japan, basically from the age of two. She was there watching her mum get beat up, and her mum was a heel. <laughs> so, like, you know, oh, she no. had to deal with the things of, like, uh, Mummy, why is everyone booing you? And why why do you go out there and get busted open and bleed? Yeah, because Kyoko wasn't just a technical wrestler. She would get into brawls. She'd jump off the balcony at Kurokan Hall. It's, you know, she was a pretty wild wrestler. And Hana had to kind of process all of that and travel all across. She lived in Okinawa for a bit because Kyoko wanted to, ah, she did some work over there. And all of this exposed her to wrestling from a young age. She didn't necessarily want to become a wrestler. You know, everyone come up saying, oh, when are you going to start wrestling? That wasn't mm -hmm. really her initial dream. Uh, but she realized that, everything that she wanted to do would kind of lead into that. 
You know, she wanted to be a dancer, but she didn't want to ruin dancing by making it her job. And so she kind of looked at wrestling and realized, I can incorporate certain things. You know, I'm athletic. I like doing dancing. I know how the business works. I get it. Um, And, you know, she had the benefit of her mum being there and being involved. So that gave her, let's be honest, a little bit of a leg up in sort of getting her name out there, getting into promotions like Stardom and sort of, you know, be able to sort of jump in from the, the head. And so she did that. And look, I, I didn't follow her from the very moment she began because she didn't start in stardom. She trained in Wrestle 1, and then she was doing some work in, like, Sendai Girls and uh, mm-hmm. a few different promotions like that, while also then working stardom. She went back and forth. Um, so I knew her mostly from stardom. But, like, she was one of those wrestlers who, yeah, and I think everyone who's watched wrestling long enough knows what I'm talking about here. The moment you saw them and just saw how they carried themselves, how they behaved in the ring, how they walked down to the ring, you could just sense that there was something special about her. You could just sense that this is someone who, given enough time in the industry, is going to make some waves. And even though her career was tragically cut short, she only wrestled for about five years, um, what she already was able to do in that time kind of proved that theory correct. Yeah, she I had was no idea. Great things. I had no idea that she only wrestled for such a short period of time. Yeah, she debuted in 2016. Um, so she started off there. I think the other thing to keep in mind is when she passed away in 2020. So she actually only wrestled for four years. My my bad. She was age 22. Yeah. So she started when she was 18. She was only 22 when she passed away. And yeah, most people who are aware of Hanukkah kind of knew her where she was at right before her passing. When there's a lot of us about, okay, this girl from stardom is feels destined for some pretty big things. She appeared in Ring of Honor, did a couple of stints there uh, with the, the rest of the stardom girls who went through. And there's a lot of buzz about her internationally, kind of like, okay, this is, this is someone we need to keep an eye out for. Thinking what could have been with her just from that period, just four years into career, just at the age of 22, um, just gives you an idea of what kind of impact she'd made already. Yeah, I remember when everything unfortunately happened, the pictures going around were of this really colourful, really cool-looking girl. Mm. Um, and then I was quite shocked when I was, you know, learning more about her and watching old stardom matches, how incredibly different she used to look. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm not sure you, you, you'll obviously get to it and explain better than me, but she was kind of dressed in pretty much all black she had black hair that wasn't very long mm-hmm. um she pretty much unrecognizable from the person that she ended up being this colorful majestic woman um i was actually like when i first saw it, it was a hannah kimura match i was like I, that, that's not hannah that's not she doesn't look anything like hannah it's like that's, polar opposites that's the same thing that happened to me watching katsuhiko nakajima and noah because I knew him from his G1 appearance in New Japan Pro Wrestling when he was just mm-hmm. kind of clean cut, like short blonde hair, you know, kind of you wouldn't really stand out much. And then in NOAA 2020 when Go Shiozaki's stuff was sort of getting big attention, I saw, oh, Katsuhiko Nakajima, I remember him. And I clicked on the, the, the match to watch. I'm like, who the hell is this guy? You know, kind of mid curly hair. It was dark. He was got, had a goatee. Looked nothing like that dude. So I imagine it was a very similar situation for you. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I I don't know what I was watching or anything, but it was just, you know, after seeing so much talk of her on social media Mm. when she passed away and all the love and support, and it was all very vibrant and colourful because that was the way she looked. 
But I went back and watched old matches of hers, and it was this dark person. I think she was maybe even. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, you'll you, you'll correct me if I'm wrong. Um, that she was a heel back when she was dressed like this with the long with the shorter black hair and things like that. You're absolutely right. So when she started wrestling, uh, not just in, she joined Stardom later in 2016, but she spent like the first six months uh, wrestling, you know, just the independence and wrestle one. She'd wrestle like one match a month with Rika Saki, who is sort of the muscle idol. You might have heard of her. Um, you know, they trained up together and they were working together in wrestle one. When she jumped to Stardom, she was basically working two different gimmicks. So on the independent scene, she was working just this sort of plucky, happy-go-lucky young girl, sort of the face, you know, works from the bottom against the wrestlers. She kind mm -hmm. of, I would say almost like not a cheerleader gimmick, but that kind of concept. Um, and when she joined Stardom and she joined her mother, who was over there, she joined the group that Kyoko helped form, which is Oedo Tai. And anyone who knows anything about Stardom knows that Oedo Tai is the designated heels, and they work as heels pretty much from day dot. They continue to do so. They sort of get up to no good. They're ruffians. They cheat. They break the rules. So she was jumping between these two personalities from happy to be there, you know, smiling, waving to the fans. And then she'd join Oedo Tai and Stardom, and this one might be in the space of like a day or two the difference. And she'd be this narcissistic, egotistical, I'm the most beautiful person in the room kind of gimmick and character, and getting up to mischief, breaking the rules, you know, throwing water in people's faces with Oedo Tai. And she'd just bounce back and forth between this. And that Oedo Tai gimmick was how she worked in Stardom for about two years. She started in 2016. And it ended in 2018. She spent about four to five months on, on excursion in Mexico. Then when she came back, she betrayed Oedo Tai. And that's when she started experimenting. She didn't find it straight away, but it was the prototype to the Hanukkah that you would first see in the images in the time of her death. That, you know, yeah. neon, vibrant, pink hair, bright mm -hmm. green uniform. That's sort of where that adjustment came in that uh, late 2018 early 2019 when she began to find this distinctive character outside of Oedo Tai. So when she did leave Oedo Tai mm -hmm. um, you know the thing I think most know Hannah for was the uh, Tokyo Cyber Squad. Yes. Was that was it that an immediate thing after Oedo Tai that she did she find found Tokyo Cyber Squad what's the story there? So how that came about is when she came back and betrayed Oedo Tai in 2018, for the next four to five months, she was just kind of roaming on her own, which especially at this point in time in stardom is very unusual. It's very faction heavy. Everyone's got a group that they belong to. So she kind of had this group, but not a group where she was basically teaming with all the international wrestlers, which kind of made sense because she you know, had traveled a bit. She'd been to America. She'd been on excursion to Mexico. So she kind of understood the you know, foreigners who were coming in. She could help them out a little bit. In, I think it was, it was the golden week. So pretty much this time uh, in 2019, so three years ago, there was a big faction match and the leaders of Oedo Tai, Queen's Quest, Stardom Army and Jungle Assault Nation all were in a match along with Hanukkah And basically the last person eliminate uh, the last person eliminated would lose their group. And so Hanukkah right. eventually eliminated Jungle Kiona. And so Hana created her own group as a result of that. And that group would come to be known as Tokyo Cyber Squad. It took them about a week to come up with the name after the initial announcement of, I'm going out with my own group. And 
Ironically, she picked Jungle Kiana to be her first member. And that, so for anyone that doesn't know, Jungle Kiona is Trent's favourite wrestler. Yes. So I was incredibly, oh, look, I was disappointed to see Jungle Assault Nation get broken up. Um, but when I realised Hana and Jungle were going to be paired up, I was very excited because Hana was the kind of person I think Jungle needed. She was a fantastic wrestler, um, but just needed that more sort of exuberant, uh, outgoing personality to kind of help Jungle along in finding her own sort of niche and character. Oh. Okay, we've kind of got an overview of Hana, a very brief, quick overview mm. because there's so much depth. But once she steps into the ring, who was Hana Kimura? What was her wrestling style? You know, what made her different and why did she stand out so easily, so quickly in such a short period of time? So the interesting with Hana Kimura is obviously she only had four years wrestling experience. And look, some people can enter a match from the very beginning and just kind of be a prodigy. Someone like Utami Hayashishida would come in and just from the start, you're like, oh, you have got everything about wrestling down pat. Hana's moveset was pretty basic, um, especially early on. But even towards the end of her career, she didn't have a wide base of moves. She's sort of a typical kind of brawler type, had a little bit of technical moves, a little bit of sort of flamboyant stuff, but primarily she'd just kind of beat you down a bit. Um, what really worked though is, although she didn't have a wide base of moves, everything she did do, she did incredibly well. You know, it smoothly, cleanly, made it look like it hurts when it needed to. It was quite safe. And she's deceptively strong as well. Like she's not this overly built like a muscle bound wrestler but especially towards the end of her career like there was quite a bit of definition in the arms and sort of in the upper body she was had a strong core one of the sort of signature moves she'd do is like this stalling suplex which you know takes a quite a lot of strength typically it's a move reserved for your big powerhouses who yep. have muscles on muscles on muscles and here's Hana just lifting up the whole roster and just holding them up there, holding them up there, you know, posing for the crowd, sort of selling it. And towards the end, she'd also incorporate a part where it's, I'm ho horrible at explaining, but kind of how they're trapped uh, sort of in the body, almost like in how Paige would do the rampage finisher she did, had it kind of curled up in a ball, held up in the air. Um, she would do that and then deadlift them up into the stalling suplex which, again, takes incredible strength to be able to pull off. Um, her other sort of moves, like she had the big boot. She started incorporating the hydrangea, which is kind of the Zack Sabre Jr. octopus stretch style move. And in mm. the last months of her career, she started winning matches with the package pole driver, which she called the Tiger Lily, which was a nice impact move to go along with the hydrangea submission. Right, yeah, no, totally, yeah, yeah. Um, I would have never, yeah, I've seen... A handful of Hannah's matches. Um, mm. I would have never pegged her for someone to be a brawler necessarily, like a powerhouse brawler, because she certainly doesn't use it. So to so to hear that she uh, she doesn't look it. Sorry. So to hear that she's performing uh, stalling suplexes is very astonishing. Because yeah, she's very deceptively and deceivingly strong. It seems. Yeah. And look, around that time, there was a bit of a switch and focus on not bodybuilding necessarily, but building that kind of uh, deceptive strength. And Kagetsu was the head trainer around that time, who's someone that mm -hmm. Hana was very close to because of that Oedo Tai connection they had. She was someone who really focused on building that sort of muscular strength and being able to pull off these kind of moves. And Hana Kimura is one of the first people, I think, who really bought into that idea. 
you know, when she started with Oedo Tai, she wasn't tiny, but like she didn't have that anywhere near that kind of definition. She's a very idol-esque kind of figure. Um, but as by the end of her career with Take a Cyber Squad, you know, you wouldn't always notice it, but like if she was, you know, flexing and posing to the camera, you, you notice that kind of definition and you realize why she's able to pull off the kind of moves she was doing. So she, even though she wasn't actively a wrestler for very long, Mm -hmm. Did she win uh, many or any titles or have any major accomplishments, whether within stardom or elsewhere? So one of her, the earliest title she had was actually before she even started wrestling. Um, again, <laughs> she's connected with Kyoko Kimura, which gives her access to just about all of Japan in terms of wrestling. She won the DDT Iron Heavy Metalweight Championship. Oh, um, right, which yep has a very distinguished lineage, of course, and she eventually lost that to her mother because, um, you know, her mum always had to get the victory over her daughter, which makes sense. Um, from there, she also won the JWP junior title. Uh, Ooh, within... so, mm -hmm. Sorry, Trent, do you know no, how Hannah, Hannah won the title, uh, the DDT title? Not off the top of my head, unfortunately. Um, I haven't seen the footage myself. I just came across it when researching it and kind of thought, yeah, that makes sense. It's DDT. It's the Iron Heavy Metalweight Championship. I'm so curious about this. Like, how old was she when she won the title and how it happened? Because, yeah, uh, it's DDT at the end of the day. Um, so I'm curious as to how, what, a 10-year-old girl maybe won, won one of DDT's titles. Well, I'm pretty sure that wouldn't be the first 10-year-old girl to win, win the championship. Yeah. <laughs> uh, amongst all of its other illustrious champions in its reign. Um, within stardom, she won the artist, the trios title a couple of times. Once with Alberto mm -hmm. once with Tokyo Cyber Squad. She had a really lengthy uh, goddess of stardom, the tag titles reign alongside Kagetsu. Probably one of the most important tag reigns. It was what really established... Kagetsu and uh, Hana in that sort of 2017 version of Oeno Tai, which for me were the golden years of it. But her biggest accomplishment in stardom was winning the 2019 Five Star Grand Prix, which is oh, their, wow. yeah, that's their biggest tournament. It's the yeah. equivalent of the G1 Climax in mm -hmm. New Japan. Yeah, she won that in 2019. That's really where you kind of look at when stardom were kind of signaling to go, she's the future of our company. And it yeah, was right absolutely. around the time that Bush, uh, Bushi Road took over. And they basically pegged four people to be the future of the company. Mayu Iwatani, Arisa Hoshiki, Julia, and Hana Kimura. Um, you know, Hana was in all of the promotional material. She was slapping the Bushi Road president in the ring and at the announcement. She was in the <laughs> Wrestle Kingdom uh, match, which unfortunately still hasn't been released. But she was front and centre around that time. And the Five Star Grand Prix kind of legitimised her as being someone who everyone looked at and went, you've got potential, you're going to be a big name, and kind of said, okay, now it's time for her to be a big name. Yeah, no, winning, I had, I had no idea she won the Five Star Grand Prix. That's mm. really a testament to the fact that they were putting some weight behind her and obviously had plans for her, like you said. Um, you know, you don't win the, most, the biggest tournament of the year, the most prestigious tournament of a company's year, without some precedence, without some future plans, without deserving it. You just have to look at the lineage of those uh, five-star Grand Prix winners to know that if you win that uh, tournament, you're probably going on to win the World of Stardom Championship, if not that year, in a year or two. I think part of something that, of course, needs to be discussed when it comes to Hannah Kimura is her exposure and life outside of the wrestling ring because mm. she was part of a very popular reality tv show in japan 
called uh, Terrace House. Uh, I've never watched it. I know very little about it. So Trent, can you tell me what Terrace House was about, uh, what the show was and what Hannah's part on that show was? Yeah, so Terrace House was a Japanese reality show that was running, at that point, it was about eight years. It began in 2012. And it's, look, I wasn't a, I didn't really watch it that much. Although, to give you an idea of how big it was, it actually made it on global Netflix. Um, you were able to watch it. Yes. I'm not sure if it's still on mm-hmm. there. The, yeah. the Hunter episodes did eventually make it to Netflix just before her passing. Um, it was, yeah, it's a basic reality show where they just take a bunch of people from Japan, kind of similar age groups, and you know, I guess young, attractive guys and young, attractive girls, and you chuck them in this big shared house and you just film their life. Um, yes, you know, it was promoted when I first heard about it as a reality show that wasn't really a reality show. They didn't feed on the drama and the hijinks, it wasn't keeping up with the Kardashians or rich housewives of Orange County or anything like that. Um, although, unfortunately, in the wake of Hana's passing and as more of a spotlight got put on Terrace House, it kind of became revealed that eh, it was as messy and ugly as all those other reality shows in yeah, kind of of the way it was filmed, the way it was set mm-hmm. up and what they were doing with the, I guess you'd call them talent, uh, the people that were involved front and centre in the camera. Yeah, no, it's, it's every reality show says it, doesn't they, where... You know, this is real life, and you know, mm. the fact of the matter is, it's not. It's all set up. It's all pre-planned, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but how did? So, what was Hannah's involvement on this show? Was she? She was one of the people that's put into this house, I suppose. And then, you know, did was there mention of the fact that she was a wrestler? Yeah, so she came in, like, the season she appeared on, she wasn't there on the start. She joined after, I think, like, eight episodes or so. So she's kind of like, a, ooh, new person, what kind of, what's that going to do to the group dynamics? And she came in, and from the start, she said she was a professional wrestler. And one of the reasons she went on to Terrace House, uh, according to Kyoko Kimura, she wanted to spread the word about women's pro wrestling. You know, she goes on there, she presents herself as someone interesting, worth paying attention to. Fans of the show then might go watch Stardom and see what she's all about. Uh, they actually did feature her wrestling in Stardom on one of the episodes. A few of the housemates went to watch a match at, watch a match at Shinkiba First Ring. I think she was facing Azumi in that match. Um, and, you know, it would sort of show footage of the match and cut to the the guys, you know, who'd gone to watch the match and that kind of thing. But beyond that, like, she was just a, a young girl, a young woman who was, you know, involved there. She had crush on someone in the, the house. You know, she'd go on dates. She'd go and, you know, do this and that. And the cameras were following her. Unfortunately, stuff happened on that show, um, which... To, to put into context, uh, Hana Kimura had recently got a new version of her attire, which was a take on the green sort of unitard that she had. It was kind of pearlescent. It was actually a beautiful piece of work. Unfortunately, the uniform got destroyed in the wash. And look, I'm not going to go into too much details. She blamed one of the guys for ruining it by putting it through the wash and not taking it out or something like that. And yeah. the response from the viewers was very harsh towards her for that. And they basically got on her case. And that's where the cyberbullying really, like, obviously she was on a reality show. She probably was getting it beforehand. But that was one of the catalysts because she went off on this guy that really fueled the drama and the cyberbullying that would build up and build up and build up that eventually, you know, led to her t- uh, committing suicide. 
Yeah, um, I think we, we can't not mention it, but it would be mm. nice to get off the topic quickly, of course. Um, in yeah. May 20, got off rather lightly. Um, I'm not sure what came of that. Quite frankly, hopefully he got a lot more punishment um, because, yeah, it shows that the power of social media, especially, you know, it's a, it's a total another podcast, a different discussion for a different day. But um, because of some, quite frankly, absolutely disgusting human beings, you know, pro yeah. wrestling and stardom lost one of potentially their, uh, you know, their shining lights. The, the person I'm pretty sure you're talking about that this particular case got the attention because it was quite early on in the piece. Um, the person was charged with 9,000 uh, 9, yen fine, which, you know, to equate it to American dollars, that's about $85 US. That was the punishment. Um, obviously, there's quite a bit of an uproar because the argument would be made if you are found guilty of contributing to someone's death, you would think that would be more than mm -hmm. $90. Then fucking... Yeah. I mean, look, the, the problem is there, like, the rules are set in place that are outdated because it's not accounting for the way social media is used in this day and age and not contributing to how bullying actually works in, you know, modern times. Uh, Kyoko's been pushing pretty much since then. That's what she's doing is she's trying to get these laws changed and harsher punishments have been brought in um since that has come about well, it's not huge changes but it is something in the the right direction i think the worst thing in all of this is when talking about hunter's passing it's important to remember that this all happened right when covid was hitting not necessarily that's worse but when it was at its most confusing so yeah you know, early, everyone early in was yeah everyone was locked down so hunter kimura someone who's used to going out and doing all these different things and getting into wrestling going about her day-to-day -day life she didn't have that she was stuck in a house stuck in a house with really the only thing to do is be working on social media because stardom did require its talent to still be promoting and doing stuff they were doing zoom calls and appearances basically to keep mm -hmm. stardom relevant so yeah, she was involved yeah. in social media with no escape from it and getting hundreds and hundreds of hate messages. And I'm not going to repeat the stuff that was said to her, but like some incredibly vile and disgusting and just downright abusive stuff. As someone who suffers from depression myself, I cannot imagine what it would have been like in that situation to just have no escape from all these messages coming through. No wonder like it, it got to that point where she had, she felt like she had no other option. Yeah, it really, you know, brought the wrestling world together and it shouldn't take an instant like this for it to happen, but it's always the way the way the, it's always the way the world works, unfortunately. But, you know, that day, that week, that month on Twitter, just the overwhelming love for Hannah and this desire for things to get better. And, you know, unfortunately, it doesn't happen. People fall back into the same traps they were doing before. Um, but, you know, as someone that knew very little about Hannah, um, I'd only just started to perhaps dip my toes into stardom at the time. Um, this outpouring of love and sadness was just absolutely overwhelming. And it just really showed you how much of an impact Hannah had made on the wrestling world in such a short time that you can't help but wonder if she had more time, if she was still wrestling today, what would her impact be? And if she yeah. was still wrestling, you know, for the rest of her life, you know, what were the possibilities? It doesn't sound like there was a ceiling for her. No, it's really not. Like, everyone was kind of looking at her, and this is even before her passing, uh, looking at her as someone who'd be like a transcendent talent. Because, you know, any, not anyone, but 
you can get a hundred people come through who are incredibly talented in the ring, wonderful technicians or incredible athletes. But to have the kind of it factor and charisma to be a transcendent talent, that's not something you come across every day. But as I said, like the moment I saw Hannah walk down to the ring when she was only like 19 years old and you saw what she was capable of and just the aura she had, like you knew that really the sky was the limit for her. And I truly believe even if she wouldn't have been like a Manami Toyota inside the ring, you know, top tier wrestler, she would have been someone who just redefined what it meant to be a woman's wrestler. She would have been the biggest name in stardom. You know, she's being set up to do that. I have no doubt she would have been a world of stardom champion by this point in 2022. She would have been the face of the company, both domestically and internationally. And I think everyone would be talking about her as someone with, this is what you need to bring women's wrestling to a new frontier, to be on equal footing with the men and not just something that gets talked about as an aside which Stalin's already doing well now, but I think someone like Hana would have had that kind of impact that you just can't get from anyone else on a roster. Yeah, I think the thing with talents that take wrestling to the new level is often that it's not necessarily as stupidly as it might sound about the wrestling. Mm. It's about so much more than that. It's about the character. It's about the story. It's about their look. It's about their charisma. It's, of course, the wrestling plays a part, but the things that get the attention outside of the wrestling world that make people take notice are people that have this, you know, the it factor, you can't, it's intangible. Um, and it certainly sounds like, you know, from everything you're selling me, from the love she received, from Bushi Road's plans for her, that Hannah was certainly going to be that person. I, I have no doubt. Like, you know, not to put like an impossible comparison on case but you look at someone like the rock who yeah it was capable in the ring but he didn't get famous because he was a phenomenal uh wrestler yeah he got there because he was just a total package he looked the look he walked the walk and he talked the talk that would have been the kind of impression hunter would have been able to put on the joshi scene would it have been as big as the rock yeah probably not but like it would have been what joshi wrestling and what women's wrestling needed in terms of that and you're seeing that to a lesser extent i think with julia who in many ways has i think taken the mantle of where hana kimura was going to be for stardom and she's doing a great job but like i don't think she can possibly feel the shoes that hana was walking in at that time and then one year i think perhaps to the day after her death there was a memorial show held for hana um that yeah, it was held on, the, on the day of her death may 23rd and it is taking a place again in 2022, uh, mm -hmm. around about probably the time this podcast will air. Um, can you talk about the Hannah Matane show from last year? You know, what was it like, the importance of it? Because I, I haven't watched it, but from what I remember, I think people that had perhaps retired or were no longer active in somewhat came back so they could be part of this show for Hannah. Yeah, so look, the main event of this match featured Kigetsu and Hazuki both of who had retired from wrestling and stardom late, 20, uh, nine, late 2019, early 2020. So right, you know, within months of Hana's actual passing, um, both were very close to Hana. They came back for a special one-off match. In Kigetsu's case, it was a two-off match because they'd wrestled Asuka, aka Veni. Um, and after the match, Veni challenged Kigetsu to a, a match afterwards. And they had 
back-to-back matches, which was fantastic. Like, uh, truly one of the better matches of the year, even ignoring the circumstances of the Hanamatane event. Hazuki would eventually come back to wrestling, come back to stardom. But, like, yeah, at the time, this was them coming out of retirement to celebrate the life and times of Hanakamura. You had wrestlers from stardom, you had wrestlers from you know, independent promotions, you had you know, men coming through. It was just a, it was a celebration of wrestling, it was a celebration of Hana. And in many ways, it was it was a celebration of life because as much as you know, Hannah's tragic death was about it. Her exuberance, her you know, character when she was wrestling was one of let's celebrate life, let's celebrate ourselves and what makes us ourselves. With Tokyo Cyber Squad, their uh, signature catchphrase was "Everyone is different, everyone is special." That was the attitude she tried to portray. As someone who was mixed race in Japan, I think that was very important to her to be able to take the things that make you different and unique and celebrate them and, you know, go as far as you can with them. So with the Hanamatane show, it was a celebration of those kind of things. And I do believe without having seen the uh, new one yet, obviously, because it hasn't happened yet, I'm expecting that to kind of be along the same lines. Yeah, I mean, it just makes it more heartbreaking, quite frankly, doesn't it? Considering that her god, you know, she created a Tokyo Cyber Squad and that their catchphrase was everyone is different, everyone is special. And for someone with that mindset trying to put something of that goodness out in the world to have the tragic ending that she did, it's just, you know, it's the worst possible outcome. You want to say, like, it's tragedy. It sounds like something from Shakespeare, but mm. it's, it's the real world and it's just fucking awful. I do believe, though, like if she, you know, the circumstances, you know, she did pass away, she did take her own life. But I think that would be the legacy she'd want to carry on in her name is to be yourself, to be what makes you you and to celebrate that and be special. Because Hanukkah wouldn't have become the transcendent talent and personality if she wasn't unique, if she wasn't special, if she didn't take what was different about her and celebrate it rather than kind of hiding it and, you know, kind of trying to pretend it doesn't exist. Well, I want to go back to speaking about her in the ring some more. You've Mm -hmm. spoken about her style and things like that. But when it comes to her best matches, her best opponents, uh, your favourite matches, because that's not necessarily going to be the same as her best Mm -hmm. matches... Um, what piques your interest? What are your favourite matches of hers to start with? So I guess the matches I would point to, one which everyone will point to when they're talking about Hanukkah is her singles match with Kagetsu in the 2017 Five Star Grand Prix. And this is when they were both in Oedo Tai, and the story was that Oedo Tai were going to make Hanukkah win the tournament. So naturally they were kind of building up to, Kagetsu said, I'm going to go out there, I'm going to lay down for you, and I'm going to give Mm. you the win. And this is Oedo Tai, so they stood in the same corner of the ring rather than opposite sides. They were holding hands, they were teasing the referee, they were having fun. And of course, Kagetsu was lying when she said she'd lie down for her. And the whole story was basically she wanted to get the best out of Hanukkah. And Hana being, at that stage, she was like you know, 19 years old. She got pissy because it didn't go according to plan. But it was all about a learning experience, and they grew closer together. It's a great mix of comedy and serious emotional wrestling, along with just some good quality action. So that's that's one everyone will point to as a showcase match for what made Hana Hana. Mm-hmm. That's from her Oedo Tai days. I'd point to her match with Mika Awate in Sendai Girls in April 2018. If you want to get an idea of the independent scene, Hana, as opposed to stardom, Hana. Iwate is probably 
arguably her best rival, her best opponent. Um, she had a lot of different sort of low-tier people that were getting built up over the years. But in terms of stories that actually got developed, it's Kagetsu and Mika Iwate. So I'd recommend that match. Um, the other one I would recommend uh, is her Red Belt Challenge after winning the Five Star Grand Prix in October 2019 versus B Priestley. I'm biased about this one because I was actually at this event live. And if you watch oh, wow. the match on Southern World, there is a moment where you can actually see me because Hana throws B into the row of chairs that I was sitting in. So I kind of have to get out of the way. And she's wailing on B with an umbrella and you can kind of spot me in the corner of it. So I'm kind of partial <laughs> to that match. I can, I can imagine the, the big Aussie that you are, Trent, will be very noticeable amongst the uh, much smaller in general Japanese crowd. Oh, it's the worst game of Where's Wally ever. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, right. So the, I, I think the difficulty with speaking about Hannah is that her career was so short. Mm. You know, when we talk best matches and things like that, you go back to, oh, this great story that, you know, went back to years and it pulled from history and they've got this rivalry and all these things. And Hannah just didn't have the time to to have that she didn't have mm. the time to generate this deep history with guys in stardom or on the independence so you know it's much more difficult i suppose to say that yes she does have these um, th she had these incredible matches because she was still so young she was still learning she was on the come up it was much more about who she could be and what she was developing into at the time where it was Absolutely. all cut short and she was a she's always been a capable wrestler, but you wouldn't have necessarily pointed to her in the first few years of her career as someone to go, okay, she's going to put on a five-star classic, you know. And when we're talking, you know, must-watch matches, that's kind of the direction you would initially go for. You know? What are the matches that will get ratings on the Dave Meltzer scale? Uh, Hannah Kimura didn't necessarily have a lot of those matches, or the, but really in the last year of her career is when things started to really uh, twig and like uh, a lot of mat yeah the matches i would sort of recommend outside of the ones i said uh you see them a lot in the five star grand prix that she eventually won then the match with uh with b Priestley the month after a couple of months later she had a great match with julia which kind of a, you know that was going to be the feud moving forward i think for both of them uh very vicious very aggressive and that's a great showcase of the kind of brawling and the character work and the arrogance that was still apparent in the Tokyo Cyber Squad version of her character because she was fun-loving, she was rebellious, kind of had that LIJ vibe, kind of, you know, anti-establishment mm -hmm. been in kind of like a cool, fun way rather than being like a heel style. Um, and But you saw that kind of, you know, arrogance and aggressiveness in that match. And the final match of her career, which was in the Cinderella tournament, um, was against Mayo Watani. And it really felt at that moment like she was going, that ended in a draw. They both got eliminated at the same time over the top rope. But it definitely felt like the next match was going to be those two in a red belt match. And that really would have established the next generation for stardom moving forward under Bushi Road. Unfortunately, we never got to see it. But Hana was starting to get to that level where you could put her in a red belt main event uh, caliber match and she would be able to hold her own, looks like she belongs. And then, of course, you had her personality, her charisma that would have just carried it over the top. At the end of the day, this podcast is called Noob Japan. You know, there might be people listening who love Hana and just mm. are excited to hear more about her. There might be people that have never 
heard of Hanakamura before, and this is their first exposure. Um, I like that you compare Tokyo Cyber Squad to uh, Lij, um, that I can never actually pronounce if I say the full name properly. Um, I think of it nadly as the Hapon. Beautiful. Uh, if you had to compare Hannah to somebody that's perhaps more popular, whether it be another Joshi wrestler or someone in the West, is there anyone you could say that Hannah was like? Or is she just because she was going to be... I know I've put you on the spot here. This wasn't a question I, I gave to you in advance. Sorry, full disclosure. Um, but yeah, no, or was... You know, it's often the case that there isn't someone like her. Yeah. You can't compare every wrestler to someone else, but... You, off the top of your head, is there anybody that you think, oh, yes, that she is like Hannah? Look, I'll be honest, and obviously it's a little bit on the spot, so I can't you know, do, do my research and come in and sound like I know what I'm talking about. I don't think there was anyone quite like Hannah. You, know, you could say, oh, there's elements of her wrestling game that kind of resembled this or that. And, like, you know, you could see a lot of her mother, I think, in the way she carried herself. But it was an evolution of that sort of version because Kyoko wasn't the pretty girl, you know, that Hana sort of presented herself as, both in Oedo Tai and eventually in Tokyo Cyber Squad as well. Her natural charisma, as I said, would be comparable to any of your top tier, you know, characters in WWE or AEW. But the character itself, I don't think, is just a natural, oh, well, she was the women's version or the Joshi version of this. Maybe there's a little bit of Sasha Banks. Maybe there's a little bit of Kenny Omega in the, the personality and the characterization. Uh, definitely a little bit of Naito in just kind of that anti-establishment style. You know, middle fingers, effing, saying F you and all of that. But it was done without kind of the lackadaisical style of Naito. It was done more of that, let's, let's have fun with this and let's rebel, but with a smile on our face. And, you know, dragging these people who don't look like they should fit in a group and bringing them together on that common united cause of we are different, we are special, let's just put the best version of ourselves out there and have fun doing it. To the point that Rena, who at this stage was 14 years old, I believe, you know, she copied Hunter's costume. And when Hunter did eventually pass, she used uh, an old costume that Hunter had and she was wearing that to the ring. She took the hydrangea finisher and was incorporating that just as a tribute and, you know, someone that meant so much to her that she wanted to put that forward and, you know, continue to celebrate Hunter's life even after her passing. I couldn't, that's a perfect little story to end on. I can't imagine a better way to end this and to, you know, uh, wrap up our episode on Hunter Kimura and the impact she had in that, you know, it's still seen today through someone like Rena and everything else and um you know one more time hunters and tokyo cyber squads catchphrase of everyone is different everyone is special please be sure to follow trend on twitter at one up culture that's the number one if you like stardom and you're not following trend then you're missing out big time i'd also implore you to check out his column that he wrote last year for wrestling on hannah kimura he wrote it for the one year anniversary of her death in 2021 You'll be hard pushed to find a more emotionally driven and well-written article in wrestling that covers Hanakamura than this one. Trent, thanks for being here as always. I'm sure you'll be back again soon. I'm sure, I'm sure we'll find a wrestler that needs uh, me talking about on ad nauseum. This podcast is one of four on the Wrestling Network, along with Flight of Five, the Ocean Cyclone Show, and our Patreon exclusive Into the Wrestleverse, patreon.com slash wrestlein. If you enjoyed this or any of our podcasts, then please subscribe, rate, and review. If you have a wrestler you 
if you have a wrestler, I've got speech problems today. If you have a wrestler you would like covered on the show, please reach out to me on Twitter at KieranRH93. That was Noob Japan. We are wrestling, and now we're out.